0: Hello, and welcome to The Big Picture, the podcast series on global events which comes to you from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This is the podcast companion to our Crasno Global Events series, which is available on our YouTube channel. The Crasno Global Events series is hosted by Professor Klaus Laris, the Richard M. Krasno Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs here at UNC. The Big Picture is narrated and produced by myself, Willow Taylor Chang Yang, a Crasno Events Assistant. The Krasno Global Event Series is a regular series of talks and discussions with high-profile experts from around the world, aiming to enhance our understanding and comprehension of global affairs, past and present. This podcast seeks to boil down these talks on some of the crucial problems of our world to its main points, and contribute to our greater understanding of world affairs. After listening to The Big Picture, we encourage you to head over to youtube.com slash to watch the full event. Today's episode in light of recent events. The former Queen of England's influence and legacy, as well as her son, King Charles III's potential impacts on the future of the UK and the British Commonwealth. We welcome King's College London's Professor Vernon Bogdanor, one of the UK's foremost constitutional experts. We hope you enjoy this episode of The Big Picture.
1: Good afternoon. I would like to welcome you to our special global event, is our distinguished guest, Professor Vernon Bogdana. Today, we are talking about the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, who was on the throne for 70 years, from 1952 to 2022. We will discuss her impact, her influence, and also her legacy, positive and perhaps negative. We will also talk about her successor, King Charles III, and what sort of reforms he may introduce, perhaps. We will ask what is the remaining soft power of the British monarch. And Britain also has a new Prime Minister, Liz Truss. I think we should also talk about the many challenges she confronts and the future of the country. I'm Klaus Laures, I'm the Richard M. Krasno Distinguished Professor of History and International Affairs here at UNC Chapel Hill. Thank you all for joining us. Please submit your questions in writing with the help of the chat function at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Our Krasno assistant Roxana will select your questions and read them out aloud to all of us. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Vernon Bogdana to the Krasno event series. Vernon is one of Britain's most distinguished historians and political scientists. In particular, Professor Bogdana is one of the country's foremost constitutional experts who has grappled with the role of the monarchy in British politics for many years. Vernon is a Professor of Government at King's College London. He also is Professor Emeritus of Government and Politics at the University of Oxford and an Emeritus Fellow at Brasenose College. Vernon's most well-known former student at Oxford University is David Cameron, the former British Prime Minister, who is responsible for holding the referendum in 2016, which led to Brexit. Professor Bogdana has written a great many well-received books There is, for example, The Age of Affluence, which dealt with Britain in the 1950s and 1960s. He has also written books entitled The Constitution and the Monarchy, Devolution in the UK, and Britain and Europe in a Troubled World. And Vernon Bechlerner has just completed his new book entitled The Strange Survival of Liberal Britain. It is coming out in October. Thank you very much, uh, Vernon, for joining us today how are
2: you it's a great privilege thank you very much indeed and good evening it's
1: evening in britain but the afternoon in america and you just told me you're writing on another article or finishing your book and it looks very scholarly in the background of your screen
2: I, i apologize for the mess here but um i do comfort myself with a remark made by einstein who said if an untidy desk indicates an untidy mind, what does an empty desk indicate?
1: (laughs) Very good. Uh, Let's go to Queen Elizabeth. Were you very sad when you heard about her passing?
2: Yes, I think I, like many other people in Britain, we were much more affected than we thought we would be because after all, the Queen was 96. Um, It wasn't to be expected that she could live many years longer. But nevertheless, we were very much emotionally affected. And uh, the same happened uh, when George VI died in 1952, her predecessor. And people then were crying in the streets of London because they remember the war and the King's leadership during the war. And people here are very, very upset, I think. And as you know, the Queen's going to be lying in state in London for four or five days, and they expect hundreds of thousands of people, probably more than a million to pass the coffin. Mm
1: -hmm. When you reflect on her life and her reign, what was her influence? Because constitutionally her power was very, very limited.
2: Absolutely. Um, She um, had some powers at the beginning of her reign, in particular the power to appoint a prime minister. She had a discretion. And that was twice used in the early years of her reign, rather controversially. In 1957, she appointed Harold Macmillan, when some people thought she should have appointed R.A. Butler. And then in 1963, she appointed Lord Hume when some people again thought she should have appointed R.A. Butler or, or someone else. Now in 1965, the Conservatives decided very sensibly that they should have an electoral procedure for choosing a leader because after all, if you were to find someone acceptable to the Conservative Party, Conservative MPs were in a better position to discover that than the Queen. So um, all that went away. And by the end of her reign, she had hardly any real powers. Now that's important, I think, because if you have no power, you're in a much better position to act as head of the whole nation. Now, if you're a head of state with powers, as of course you can see in America where where your president combines the position of head of state and of head of the nation, a lot of the decisions any president makes are obviously going to be controversial. So it's more difficult to represent the whole country. Excuse me. Now, the queen, precisely because she has no power and and is politically neutral, is in a very good position to represent the whole country. And that's one of the reasons for the grief at her passing. And dare I say it to an American audience, but we did have a seamless transition of power from one head of state to another that the king became king immediately on the queen's death there was no dispute about who the head of state should be now it's very different in america of course where you have a real electoral fight in every presidential election so the president is the victor and represents the majority but not necessarily the whole country that's a great difference of course between the two systems
1: So uh, many people say that she did wield quite a bit of influence, not just by being, let's say, a figurehead and the people liked her, but also by her weekly audiences with the prime minister. How would you judge that? Did that really influence and change things or were these just information sessions?
2: Yes, indeed. The fact that you don't have power at the last stage, that you have to agree to what the government decides, doesn't mean that before that last stage, you might not have influence. And if we take an extreme example from American history on which you've written, Klaus, there's a sense in which Henry Kissinger had no power in the Nixon and Ford regimes, but he had a lot of influence and the president decided, but Henry Kissinger had a lot of influence. Now, I'm not saying the Queen's influence was on that scale, but I think it's important to distinguish. And it's fair to say, I think, that the longer you're on the throne, the more influence you're likely to have. Now, you're not going to have influence on the major issues of policy. I mean, if the Queen said to the Prime Minister, look, I think we ought to rejoin the European Union, that's not going to work. But on a a number of other matters, the Queen might say, you know, I've been Queen for a long time. And 30 years ago, a, a Prime Minister tried what you're thinking of now. And this is before you got into politics. And I have to tell you, it didn't work terribly well. I wonder if you might perhaps think again about this. Perhaps perhaps there could be an alternative way of doing things. Now the prime minister doesn't have to take any notice, but I think a sensible prime minister would take notice. So the meetings are not formalities. And we know about former uh, sovereigns, certainly in the case of Queen Victoria in a different age, but also George V and George VI in the first half of the 20th century, they had more influence than was thought at the time because the influence isn't known till long after a sovereign's death. Now we won't know the queen's influence for some time till the archives are opened and someone writes the official life. But I suspect it's there.
1: We know that uh, Queen Elizabeth and Margaret Thatcher did not get on (laughs) at all. And I'm not sure that the relationship with Boris Johnson was all that good either. Did that have consequences or were these just personal chemistry problems?
2: Well, these are rumours and we don't frankly know whether they're true or not. But um, I suspect the, the, the Queen, and I suspect Charles III as well, from their position are very much, as it were, consensual politicians. They don't like radical changes, whether from left or right. Now you can argue that Margaret Thatcher was the most radical politician we've had since the war. She upset what many people saw of the post-war consensus. Perhaps the nearest similarity in America is Ronald Reagan. There are similarities between the two of them. And it may be, we don't know for sure, that the Queen was unhappy about that. In the case of Boris Johnson, if there were differences, and I don't know whether there were, I think the Queen might not have liked Boris Johnson's rather casual behavior. I think that might have jarred a bit. But in the case of Margaret Thatcher, it's significant that some of the differences were thought to be in relation to Commonwealth matters, because this was the time of apartheid in South Africa, and the African and Asian members of the Commonwealth were very firm that there should be strong sanctions. Margaret Thatcher was against that. And also on the minority white regime in Rhodesia, led by Ian Smith, there were great differences. And one has to remember the queen, as well as being queen of Britain, she was also queen of a number of other states, or was queen of a number of other states, For example, Australia, Canada, Jamaica, Belize, Barbados, New Zealand, I think there are about 14 others, but also head of the Commonwealth, which has over 50 states uh, and a quarter of the world's population. And it's very important that the role of head of the Commonwealth should not be seen as an extension of the British monarchy. Otherwise, that would seem to replicate the imperial connection. And the Queen was very good at doing that by taking the side, broadly speaking, of the African states on apartheid. She established a very good relationship with Nelson Mandela. And I was told by one former private secretary of the Queen that without her, the Commonwealth would have disintegrated. And the first president of Zambia, Kenneth Kaunda, said the same, that we would have left if it wasn't for her. And Mm -hmm. there was tremendous respect, even though the African and Asian countries are republics, There was tremendous affection for the Queen as head of the Commonwealth, and we must remember that other role, which gives the British monarchy a kind of international dimension, which the other monarchies of Europe don't have. The only analogy, perhaps, is with the Vatican.
1: Thank you. But generally, uh, the Queen is generally mourned, not just uh, across the United Kingdom, but in much of Europe, in much of the Western world that is very different or at least partially different in africa and other former colonial countries where also a lot of criticism has been thrown at the queen and that a lot of people have said that there can't be sad that can't be mourning because of her symbolizing british colonialism do you believe do you believe or do you understand that or is that not an, a fair accusation
2: and maybe what people think but I don't think it's right, because during her reign, we moved from empire to Commonwealth. Now, when she came to the throne, uh, India and Pakistan were the only non-white countries that were independent, uh, sorry, and and Sri Lanka. Now, the first African country to become independent was Ghana, which was previously the Gold Coast in 1957. But since then, of course, the whole whole empire has, has gone. And the Queen once said, I have seen the transition from empire to Commonwealth in close quarters. And that transition is from a relationship based on dominance to a voluntary relationship of equals. It used to be called the British Commonwealth. It isn't that anymore. It's entirely voluntary. And all the colonies have joined except for Burma, which is now Myanmar and is not frankly, I think a very happy country. And from that point of view, Empire can't be that terrible if all the ex colonies want to keep up connection with Britain, voluntary collect connection of equal states. And the Queen said this, this is something totally new in experience, a move from an empire based on domination to an equal relationship.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, do you expect many changes to the monarchy happening under Charles, uh, his uh, her successor?
2: Yes, we've already seen them. They'll be evolutionary and pragmatic because that's the way we work. But we've seen them at the beginning. Um, I don't know how many people saw the king, the new king, arriving at Buckingham Palace where he talked to people and shook hands with them. Now, that was something new. The queen did not allow people to touch her and walk about. And the only way you could shake hands with her was if you were invited as as a guest to Buckingham Palace. That, That changed with the king. And the new Prince of Wales, formerly Duke of Cambridge, Prince William, he did the same in Windsor, outside Windsor Castle. So this is new. And then he's going immediately to the non-English parts of the United Kingdom, Scotland today, Northern Ireland tomorrow, and then Wales. And that's, of course, the sign that we've become a multinational country, that we've got now devolved bodies, which weren't there when the Queen came to the throne in 1952. So that's one important change a greater openness, reaching out to more people. I think there's a second change. If you heard the king's tribute to his mother, there were two quotations from Shakespeare in it. Uh, he's particularly interested in Shakespeare and the arts in general. And I would guess that he will make Buckingham Palace a centre of the arts, as it was in the days of George II in the 18th century, in relationship with Handel, the water music, and all the rest of it. So I, I think we will see a very different monarch. And um, Charles, a different person, his style is different, different generation, more eager to reach out perhaps, less, um, less of the stiff upper lip of the wartime generation to which the queen belonged. I mean, if you belong to that generation, you had to have a stiff upper lip and just get on with things. You, couldn't, you didn't have the time to reach out. Now, Charles is a different person. So I think we will see these changes very gradually. The essence of monarchy, of being above party neutral and representing the whole nation that will remain but there'll be changes in the way, as it were, it manifests itself.
1: Charles has a, got a, a lot of baggage, if, if you like, he wasn't particularly popular when he was still Prince of Wales, and he and his mother as well really messed up things surrounding the death of Princess Diana and the whole um issue uh, regarding diane's integration into the royal fam- family or not caused a lot of damage i think to the queen herself but also to the monarchy and also to then prince charles has that over been overcome or do you think charles still needs to work on it is camilla uh, has camilla become popular
2: well i i think it has been overcome the death of diana of course a terrible tragedy and it's also, of course, a terrible tragedy when a marriage breaks up, though it's very difficult for any outsider to be clear why that's happened. And you're right, the Queen was blamed for not coming to London immediately. But she took the view it was more important to comfort her grandchildren, who were in Scotland with her at the time. And that's a, 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 not a it is a perfectly sensible judgment, but it didn't fit in with the public mood, you're right. And the Queen, I think, didn't understand how in the modern world, you mustn't repress your emotions, but you must be authentic and and show them, as it were. That wasn't her world, the world she was brought up in. Now, um, I think um, the new Queen has been accepted by the British public because both Charles and the Queen have done a great deal of public service work. And indeed, I think of Charles is the first, or was the first heir to the throne, who have actually found a role for himself. There's no job description for what you should do. And he could have done nothing. He could have been an idle playboy whiling away his time in nightclubs. He, he had not been that. He's founded these various charities under the Prince's Trust, which have helped those who are down on their luck the disfranchised, if you like. Um, they've got them jobs. Um, they've helped ex-prisoners, helped members of ethnic minorities and so on. To give one example, we had riots in, in part of North London in 2011 in Tottenham, and the Labour MP for Tottenham, a man called David Lammy, who shadowed Foreign Secretary, he said MPs and ministers, they came down once and then went away. He said Charles came down five times and did, did his best to attract firms and businesses to the area. And he could do it because because of his royal status. And this is a A good use of soft power he's done a tremendous amount in terms of public service and i think people appreciate and understand that
1: so do you think it was a good idea for him having to wait until the age of 73 before he was able to succeed
2: well it's an awful position isn't it because in a way you come into your inheritance when your mother dies which is not something one wants and he must have mixed emotions now because he has at last come into his inheritance but his mother has died. And as I say, one shouldn't regard the period up to now as waiting or an apprenticeship. He has made a role for himself out of being heir to the throne. And I suspect the new Prince of Wales would do exactly the same, that he will continue that public service tradition. You see, I think the monarchies moved from the time of, uh, the time when the queen came to the throne in 1952, when there was a tremendous mystique about it, partly based on religion, One third of the British public then thought the Queen had been chosen by God. And that's all gone. The mystery is gone. And the monarchy can only survive if it performs a practical and utilitarian purpose, if it's what I would call a public service monarchy, if it's seen to do good. Otherwise, people won't have it. And the late Duke of Edinburgh once said it's a mistake to think that the monarchy exists in the interest of the monarchy. It doesn't. It exists in the interest of the people. And if at any time the people don't want it, there's machinery by which they can get rid of it. They have a referendum and so on. And of course, some of the Commonwealth realms have got rid of it. Barbados quite recently any country can do that. In modern times, the monarchy rests on democratic consent. And they're very well aware of that. Indeed, they study opinion polls very carefully every month to look at how opinion is forming. They're very concerned about public opinion as they must be in a democracy. It sounds paradoxical and odd, but it's a democratic institution. The Queen once made an interesting comment. It was on her golden wedding um, anniversary. She she spoke to Tony Blair, the Prime Minister, and said, you, Mr. Prime Minister, can tell when the people don't want you. It's immediate and brutal in a general election. You're immediately dismissed from power. For us, it's more difficult, but we too have to discover as best we can what public opinion wants. And that's
1: absolutely true. So do you expect Australia and Canada, for example, to um, give up on the queen as head of state? Mm. That, that's perfectly possible. Of course, the role of the queen of, of Australia,
2: the queen of Canada and so on, is very different from Britain because she's a non-resident head of state. And most of the queen's functions in Australia, Canada, and the rest of the realms are carried out by governor generals. Now, it's for Australians and Canadians decide, and the other realms, what they want to do, whether they want their own head of state or not. The situation has arisen for this reason, that in times past, Australians and Canadians thought of themselves as being British in the same way that Scots and Welsh think of themselves as British. They're Scots, but they're also British. Now, Australians and Canadians used to think of themselves in that way. Mr. who was Prime Minister of Australia in the 1950s used to say he was British to his bootstraps. And when uh, a New Zealander, uh, Edmund Hillary, first climbed Everest in 1953, the New Zealand Prime Minister said how glad he was that a British person had climbed Everest. Now that's gone. And um, the Australians and New Zealanders and the rest, they've got their own um, nationalisms, if you like. So it could go. And the reason why it didn't go in Australia last time was that um, they couldn't decide what sort of replacement to have. Now the people thought, well, this is marvelous. We can elect our own president the way you Americans do. But the politicians said, well, wait a minute. If you elect a president, it means the prime minister will no longer be the leading figure. The president will be, we don't want that. And they said, well, no, we politicians will choose a president as they do, of course, in Germany and Italy. And the people said, well, we don't want that either. So they couldn't agree. And it's a, it's a, if you don't have the queen, your politician is head of state. And one of our ex-Prime Ministers, John Major, once said, if the answer's more politicians, you're asking the wrong question. People don't want in Britain, at least, a politician's head of state. They may in Australia can, it's a different situation there. They would, let me just add this point, even if they leave, that they become republics, that doesn't matter from the point of view of the monarchy because they will remain in the Commonwealth. That is a crucial factor. Remain in the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm.
1: Would you expect Charles to um, uh, restrict uh, the royal family to make uh, fewer members of the royal family uh, uh, um, uh, welcome to receive funding from the public purse and, uh, and provide uh, royal services?
2: Well, this this is often said, and that there's something to it. Certainly, um, there's a certain amount um, voted from public funds. For the royal family and it's up to their it's up to the king that how he distributes it so it wouldn't necessarily save money if you did slim it down there's just one problem about slimming it down it's this that if you let's say you built a new town hall in a small town in britain shall we say wigan you'd be very glad if a, a member of the royal family would open it now the king can't do all of that but people prefer a member of the royal family to open it than a politician. So, and, and this gets attention in the local press, not in the national press. It is noticed. That's the case for the royal family. People like um, what they sometimes rather patronizingly call a minor royal to open it, rather that than a minister. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's judos for the town, if you like. So, um, we, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens.
1: Mm-hmm. And as far as the British constitution is concerned, which doesn't exist, which is unwritten at least, do you think changes will take place? Are we moving towards a written constitution and will the royal family, will the monarchy somehow be more firmly embedded in that? Well,
2: there are two questions here. The first about the monarchy, which I think will remain firmly embedded. That's fairly easy to answer. As i say, people don't want the politicians head of state, they've had enough politicians. But there's a larger question you ask about the constitution, and I think you were kind enough to call me a constitutional expert, but well, that's not very difficult to be if a country doesn't have a constitution. <laughs> but, um, I took with view in it, I wrote about it in a book you didn't mention called um, Beyond Brexit Towards the British Constitution. It was written after we left the European Union. And I said that while we were in the European Union, we did have a constitution, because we were subject to the rules and the treaties of the European Union. And there were all sorts of things which governments might like to do, which they couldn't do because we were in Europe. To take one extreme example, which very much influenced the debate, we couldn't restrict immigration from the European Union, which many politicians want to do. Obviously we couldn't set up customs duties against the French or Germans and all the rest of it. So we were under a constitution. Now leaving it, we're back to the situation of the so-called sovereignty of parliament, very different from the American system. And that uh, position, uh, a conservative Lord Chancellor in the 1970s, Lord Hailsham said, was one of elective dictatorship, that seemingly a majority government can do what it likes. There are no checks and balances of the kind you have in America. The only check is the check of convention. I mean, in theory, the government could pass a law saying that every every ginger-haired person is to be hung next Monday. That, that that wouldn't be ruled out by any court as unlawful uh, but uh, by convention of course governments don't do those things now those conventions some people say and I, I think i'm probably one of them have been strained to the limit by various governments particularly perhaps boris johnson government who took little on of conventions so i think there's a strong case for a constitution but it has to be said and this is one way in which we differ from america the British people, and this is sad for the sale of my books, they are not interested in constitutions. They are not interested in procedures. They're interested in substance. They care about health policy, economic policy, and they're not that concerned about constitutional matters, partly because we don't have a constitution. And the American public, of course, are quite different. And they grow up with a constitutional, which is a Bible, and it's a very different uh, form of government, obviously. Um, So although I favor a constitution, I think we're a long way from it. What I think we do need um, as a perhaps lesser thing, is a charter regulating relationships between Westminster and the devolved bodies in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. That might be a step towards it, but I would very much like to see a constitution, perhaps of the American type, protecting rights uh, and so on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that leads me to the question, Um, whether or not with the passing of uh, the the queen, the country will hold together as firmly as it has done lately. As you know, there are movements in Scotland, in uh, Northern Ireland, of course, to um, give up on being part of the United Kingdom. Will Charles be able to uh, provide the glue (laughs) perhaps his mother was uh, able to provide?
2: This is a very big question. And in Scotland and Northern Ireland, but not in Wales, they both voted against Brexit, so they voted to stay in the European Union. So they can say, we're not a federal system, of course, they can say, well, we're being pushed out of the European Union against our wish. And in the devolved bodies of Scotland and Northern Ireland, the nationalists are the government, or the leading party in both of them, the Scottish nationalists in Scotland, and the Sinn Féin party, which is a Republican party in Northern Ireland. Now, um, if Northern Ireland were to become independent, or rather if Northern Ireland were to join with, with the Republic of Ireland, she would be automatically in the European Union as East Germany was when she joined with the West in 1989, because Northern Ireland would be joining an EU member state, namely the Republic of Ireland. Scotland, if it was independent, would have more of a problem. She'd have to negotiate her way into the European Union, and she'd face the problem of a hard border with England, where most of her exports, if you call them that, go. So it'd be very difficult to be customs border, passport border, and so on. But of course, nationalism doesn't depend primarily on economics, and uh, Britain in the debate on Europe was told you'll be poorer if you leave the European Union, but people said, no, no, we don't care about that. You want to control our own affairs, and it's possible the Scots may say exactly that. However, Uh, I think the death of the Queen and the tremendous monarchical feeling has put all that on the back burner for the moment, and Scottish nationalists look a bit feeble, because although they do say they want to keep the monarchy, there are a lot of Republicans in the Scottish nationalist movement, but they somehow appear out of touch with feeling in the country, and Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland even worse, because they're a Republican party, and they say uh, well if you unionists join with Ireland don't worry we'll protect your unionist identity but unionists say how can you do that if you're going to be a republic and and you don't like the queen or the king he said how can you our identity is bound up with being British and being in a monarchy so how can you uh, in, in in Ireland protect our British identity that's that can't be so so my guess would be that it's put nationalism on the back burner for the moment and that Britain will For the time being, at least stay together,
1: but an independent Scotland could become a member of the Commonwealth, couldn't it?
2: Oh, yes, certainly. And as I say, it would be a monarchy and member of the Commonwealth. Absolutely right. Yes.
1: Mm -hmm. Tell us about Brexit. As you know, it's highly controversial how good or how bad Brexit has been a will-be for the country. When you listen to the Brexiteers, they say, it's actually advantageous, certainly not damaging. And if you listen to the people who are in favor of Europe, it's just the other way around. It's highly damaging for the UK to have left uh, the European Union. How do you see that?
2: Well, I was against Brexit, and most of the economists say that it's not economically beneficial, that it's economically disadvantageous, but, people say um never mind that we want to run our own affairs we don't want to be part of a larger unit which can make laws for us and that after all is what the republic of ireland said when they broke away from britain they were almost certainly poorer but they said that doesn't matter we want to run run our own affairs similarly when india and nigeria and the other colonial countries became independent, it'd be no good saying, them, look, you'll be poorer, you know, if you're independent. They said, no, no, we want to run our own affairs. That's the way we want to operate. So that's the argument. Now, there's a big argument about Brexit, but in a way, I'm sorry you asked me the question, because this debate is still going on in Britain with the Remainers, who are called Remoners. Now, Brexit is yesterday's argument. We're outside the European Union. We're not going to rejoin in the near future. It's, it's yesterday's argument. And um, The problem it's left for us, of course, is with the Northern Ireland Protocol, which instead of establishing a border on the island of Ireland between an EU member state and part of a non-EU member state, establishing an effect customs border in the Irish Sea. And this is what the new government led by Liz Truss, continuing Boris Johnson's policy, is trying to stop. And uh, the critics say, well, you're, you're in danger of breaking international law. But it is pretty difficult for a country to be economically divided I and mean, the Americans wouldn't like it if you had customs barriers um, exporting goods to Alaska shall we say and I think the Americans wouldn't take to that very easily and this is the position that we are in so um, in a sense that there, there is some sense to your question in the sense that Brexit is unfinished business and I think someone said it's a process rather than an event but I believe there's no chance in the foreseeable future of that decision being reversed and our rejoining the European Union, for better or worse.
1: I fully agree, to be honest, uh, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The new Prime Minister first was uh, a Remainer Now or soon afterwards, she became an enthusiastic supporter of Brexit and she still is an enthusiastic supporter of Brexit and she wants to continue, as you rightly said, the Johnson line on the Irish protocol. So what do we make of the new prime minister? That is already a little bit of a contradiction. Is that what her, her, her rule will be, her government will be full of contradictions?
2: Well, I wrote a piece recently in the Wall Street Journal, trying to explain why, to the surprise of many in Britain, certainly Liz Truss was winning. And I said there were two reasons. Firstly, in the campaign of this sort, and the same true of American presidential campaigns, I would say, they're about creating a mood, not about detailed policies. If you go back in American history to 1980, Carter had all the detailed policies, but Reagan created the right mood, and he won very convincingly. Now the mood that Liz Truss created was one of optimism. Britain can deal with the problem she faces. Her opponent, Rishi Sunak, who'd been the chancellor, who was a realist, said "Look, we've got very serious problems here. We can't afford to lower taxes at the moment because that would put our budget into deficit. We can't have unfunded tax cuts, which again was something Ronald Reagan did in the 1980s and then found that people weren't willing to cut public expenditure to fund those tax cuts. So there's a real problem. And uh, in a sense, a lot of people, and I must say myself included, thought that Rishi Sunak was more rational and logical. Conservative members, and they're a very small number, 160,000 who chose the leader, they said, no, no, we, we, we want to be optimistic. And if you're a Euro skeptic, which Liz Truss had become, you have to be optimistic because you have to say, well, leaving Europe will bring us great benefits. There's no point moaning and being miserable um you know leaving the european union uh opens up new vistas for us and if we are only bold enough get away from treasury orthodoxy we can take advantage of those um, um opportunities so i think this is why she won and she's talking about traditional tory views which taxes should be cut which uh, the chancellor rishi sunak had not done and not been able to do because of covid and the ukraine war and Most economists say it's foolhardy to cut taxes. Now, though a minority do agree with her that this would help economic growth. I'm not myself, one of that minority. There is some consistency in Liz Truss, even, I mean, she was at one time a liberal Democrat and then a Remainer, but she's always been a strong libertarian in the sense of leaving people free to make their own decisions. And she very much holds to that view. And so does her chancellor, quasi Quoteng, and as I think I pointed out to you before we began this discussion, we've got a remarkable government from one point of view because none of the top four positions is held by a white man. The prime minister is a woman, our third woman prime minister, and the top three positions in the government are held by non-white people, which must be a record. And I think that, that I say it myself reflects quite well on Britain. Uh,
1: this is certainly true. But would you expect uh, promising results from this trust more than from Boris Johnson? Was the change from Johnson, who in the end was highly controversial, of course, and also didn't seem to have any political successes. Uh, do you expect much more from this trust, more successful? Government? Well, I,
2: I think if I may say so, I think it's not wholly fair to say Boris had no political successes. The Ukraine war, for example, his leadership there, he. Um, He's regarded as a hero in in Kiev, if not in London, and uh, we've given more in arms and help to Ukraine than any European country. Uh, Secondly, you may argue the rapid vaccine rollout in Britain was due to him. And thirdly, the point I mentioned a few moments ago, um, his cabinet um, uh, was uh, very full of women and uh, non-white people. If you look at the leadership elections for the Conservatives, of the eight candidates four were women and four were members of ethnic minorities and three others who wanted to stand two were members of ethnic minorities and one were jewish so that is partly due to boris johnson i think he does have some successes to his credit but his, and also he won over the votes of people on low incomes remarkably for the conservatives they had more votes from people on low incomes in the so-called red wall seats and the Labour Party, they are the party of the poor, the conservative, now reversal of history. And he had this um, quality, difficult to find, the quality that Ronald Reagan had, I think, of charisma. And um, uh, something you know when someone's got it. I mean, Roosevelt had it, Ronald Reagan had it, possibly Eisenhower had it. Uh, he's got it, and the Liz Trust hasn't got that. I mean, he had a certain stardust about him, which led people to ignore his numerous breaches of rules and conventions and all the rest of it. So Liz Truss is a more down-to-earth figure. And the jury's out on how she's going to do. I I should add, from the cephalogical point of view, it's very difficult for the Labour Party to win the election. They need a very vast swing. And the most likely result is there was a swing would be a coalition with the Scottish Nationalists, the Liberals and the Greens, and that would put people in Britain off from voting, because it's what Boris Johnson called a crackpot coalition, uh, and people would think it's uh, unstable. And it's also the case in Britain that when a party loses an election heavily, it takes a long time to reverse that verdict. If you go back to 1979, Labour lost after the Winter of Discontent, it took 18 years for Labour to get back. Then when the Conservatives were out because of the difficulties following our leaving the European monetary system, it took them 10 years to get back. Now, so far, Labour's been in opposition for 12 years, but they had a very heavy defeat in 2019. They fell backwards a long way because they had a very left-wing leader who frightened people. Now, Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, he doesn't frighten people, but he doesn't inspire them much either, frankly. So I I think it's going to be very difficult for the Labour Party to win the next election.
1: But Hasn't Liz Trust almost impossible tasks ahead of her regarding the economy? For example, she wants to introduce unfunded tax cuts, and she will also wants to subsidize the high energy and cost of living uh, 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 costs the British people have to deal with. Where's all that money coming from? And doesn't it, bur- won't it burden the British economy, the Brit- the budget, the public uh, finances tremendously? So will people still invest in Britain? Will the pound sterling not go down further?
2: Yes, absolutely. You put the point better than I could. That is entirely my view, unless you can find uh, cuts in public expenditure, which isn't easy because one effect of COVID in Britain, perhaps in other countries too, has been to uh, lead to a demand for public intervention to deal with the inequalities that COVID has um, revealed. So I think it would be difficult. However, the further point which might be worth making, and I don't know whether the same is true in America, I think it isn't, but in Britain, if you're in economic difficulties, that doesn't necessarily damage a Conservative government because people say precisely because of economic difficulties, too much of a risk to vote Labour. That was the case in 1992, when we were in recession. And um, everybody thought the Conservatives would lose, but they didn't. People frightened of voting Labour. And uh, paradoxically, when the country is doing better, people say, well, now we can take a chance on the Labour Party and improve our social services. But if you look at the ele- sorts of elections Labour won, 1964, 66 and 1997, on all those occasions, the economy was doing very well. We were in the middle of a boom. We had no seeming economic crisis, you may say it was underlying economic crisis, but people felt much better off. They said, now we can take a chance on the Labour Party. But um, so it doesn't follow that if the economy is not in a good state in two and a half years time when the is due, the Conservatives will necessarily lose. But I better be careful because almost all election predictions are wrong and probably mine no better than anyone else's.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's turn to foreign policy briefly. If Liz Truss takes on the European (laughs) Union with the Irish protocol, then she has made already a formidable enemy if she really pulls that through and there have been indications that she has perhaps second thoughts about it. And secondly, she has also been very critical about uh, France and President Macron. And also about President Biden and uh, seems to be dismissive of the traditionally, of course, very close British American relationship. So, where is she going to go if she is going to uh, el- alienate all her close friends? China wouldn't be the alternative, would it be?
2: Well, on the European Union, I don't think the European Union will retaliate if we take strong measures on the Northern Ireland Protocol because Poland and the Baltic states. Uh, believe that Britain will help them in the way that she helped Ukraine uh, against Russia. And they will not, I think, do anything to weaken Britain's position. And therefore, I think the European Union will not be able to find the consensus for any strong measures against Britain. Now, you make a a good point that uh, she's not been perhaps as diplomatic as she might be towards other countries. But it's fair to say other countries have not always been very diplomatic towards Britain. And particularly over Brexit, there's a feeling in Britain that Macron has been determined to teach Britain a lesson and that he's used uh, Brexit as an excuse to uh, attract finance and business from Britain to France. And he doesn't realise, perhaps Liz Truss doesn't either, the important geopolitical arguments of British and French foreign policy cooperation We're both nuclear powers and strong defence powers with Germany, despite recent developments um, still um, does not, I think, want to play too strong a leading role on, on the European or, or world stage. I mean, the, the last German election, I think, showed that people were voting more for welfare matters and particip- and, and in environmental matters <clears throat> than they were on, on, on foreign policy and defence. And I think that German backstair, if you like, of, taking a strong line in, in foreign policy defense or acting like a hegemon in Europe is still there. So um, pe- people, a lot of people are very rude about Britain sometimes, so perhaps it's not too bad if we're rude back.
1: <laughs> Tell us about Britain and China. For, for Brit- uh, for, yeah, For Britain, China is an important export market as it is for Germany and many other countries in the world. Relations have been tense, like along with uh, other Western countries. Is Britain, in view of her desire to export, to overcome the economic crisis, trying to um, become closer to China again? Or is that kind of estrangement going to continue, which we have seen for the last few years?
2: Well, it must continue while China and Russia, for that matter, are so strongly authoritarian states. We can't in my opinion, have really friendly relationships with states of that sort. For start, we may have good economic and trading relations with them, but no more than that. And um, uh, I'm frankly surprised there hasn't been more protest about the Chinese treatment of the Muslims in, in particular, um, which is, is frankly rem- reminiscent of the Hitler concentration camps and torture and all the rest of it, a large number probably about 3 million Uyghur Muslims Apparently in camps. And um, I'm surprised that world opinion uh, and British opinion too hasn't been more exercised by that. But British opinion uh, was very much roused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And as I've said, we've been forthright in aiding the Ukraine. I think much more so than European countries. And uh, President Macron, to his credit, in a way, did his best to dissuade Putin from invasion and try to establish links with. Putin, but he, I don't think he really got anywhere, and we, we took a different view, which I, I think was right.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't uh, expect particularly close trading relationships with uh, China in the near future.
2: Well, they might be good economic and trading relationships. They won't be friendly relationships.
1: Mm-hmm. Before we open it up to the questions, we have a few questions here, and I would encourage everyone: if you have a question, please to submit it in writing. Uh, by uh, using the chat function at, your, at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Perhaps ask me, uh, let me ask you, if Liz Truss doesn't come across very well and she loses in popular appeal and the Conservative Party feels that they may well lose the next election under her or uh, with her, uh, would they turn back to Boris Johnson who has won that huge victory only a few years back?
2: No, that that sort of thing's never happened before. Um, there are only two prime ministers who've been given a second innings since the war. The first was Churchill, who, of course, was the Lord himself. The second was Harold Wilson, rather unexpectedly in the 1970s. But both of those um, uh, prime ministers had kept the leadership of their party. Boris was deposed by his own MPs. They're not likely to change their mind about that, I think. I mean. Uh, Obviously anything in, in politics is possible, but I, I doubt if we'll see another, another Boris Johnson premiership.
1: So the next conservative uh, election campaign will be led by Liz Truss?
2: Almost certainly. It's difficult for them to change a leader a second time between elections. I think that's right, yes. And she did, um, she did have a strong appeal to provincial England, which Rishi Sunak lacked. I mean, these things are partly a question and image. And to many people, Rishi Sunak looked as if he would be just as as much at home in California as in London. And um, uh, most conservative voters are not, contrary to myths, very rich people. They're small businessmen, self-employed, small shopkeepers, better off members of the working class and so on. And that kind of lifestyle didn't appeal to them, whereas Liz Truss somehow did appeal to them, to the ordinary conservative members, who are very untypical of British um, voters. They're 97% white most of them are, the average age I think of them is 57, and um, they're, they're also also mostly male, they're not typically British voters, but they have the choice of the um, leader under our system. Mm-hmm.
1: As you rightly said, it is unlikely that Britain will apply again to become a member of the European Union. But will there be increasing insight that really Britain's place is Europe, if not in a formal European Union, but certainly geographically and politically and value-wise? So will there be another rapprochement between Britain and the European continent without these formal links?
2: Well, I hope so. And President Macron has spoken um, about a Europe of, of many circles of which no doubt France would be at the center. But he said that in that Europe in many circles, there might be a place for Britain. And if you want to see defense cooperation in Europe, in my opinion, you're not going to get it through a European army, that is a fantasy. But you might get it on a kind of gaullist and confederal level led by countries like Britain and France. And indeed, you can't have European defense without Britain, in, in my opinion, and that's what we ought to be thinking about, certainly, but also the French ought to be thinking about that. And I'm sorry that there's been this mésentente, as it were, between Britain and France, which is a tragedy. Uh, a former French ambassador to London once said to me how sad it was that the British and French only got together in times of disaster, Munich, Suez, and so on. It is a tragedy because the two countries have a lot in common and um, we share a similar view of the world. We're both the oldest parliamentary states in, in Europe, amongst the major countries, and the Maisentente is a great sadness.
1: Mm-hmm. How do you see the role of the Germans in all that?
2: Well, Germany doesn't want to play that leadership role, I think, uh, in, in foreign defense policy. Uh, you, uh, you, you may think I'm wrong, Klaus, you know more about this than I do, but this is my view, and that Schultz has not been eager to play that role and certainly Angela Merkel wasn't previous chancellors. Um, the last thing they want is a hegemonic role. Um, and um, various other uh, Europeans, I mean, uh, Sikorsky, the former foreign minister of Poland said what what he, wants, what he wants to see is a bit more German leadership in foreign policy. You may think historically an odd thing for a poll to say, but um, Germans don't want to take that view. And I think a lot of the, Criticisms that are made about German so-called appeasement of Russia come from a, a feeling that arises from the war, that Germany owes Russia something, and uh, feelings of guilt about what happened in the Second World War, and that those things are obviously understandably very deep. And having said that, you see, I think the equivalent in Britain, which, for better or worse, affects our psychology, and we can't get away from it, is 1940. And I think anyone studying Britain has to think about 1940. It makes British people feel they're somehow special and not part of Europe, and that other countries owe us something, in particular Americans. And uh, it's very deep in British psychology. It's not on the surface. It's deep in the subconscious of Britain 1940. had a huge uh, subconscious effect, and it's still there in my opinion. Britain's somehow very, very special.
1: Yeah, I, I quite agree. Thank you very much. Can we turn to having some questions, Roxana? Have you selected one or two?
3: Yes, of course. So, one of the first questions is regarding the queen, um, and it's a the question is: What is the queen's role? What was the queen's, the queen's role in Irish history during her reign?
2: This is a very important question indeed. And her role, and very typically the monarchy, is one of reconciliation. And I'm very glad this question was asked because a visit to Ireland in 2011 showed the use of soft power. Firstly, she dressed in green. Then she spoke in Irish. Uh, She um, visited the graves of those who led the 1916 rising against Britain to the annoyance of many Unionists. And then she came as near to an apology as any member of the royal family can ever give, by saying, uh, "If you, um, with with the benefit of historical, I'm sorry, (laughs) with the benefit of historical hindsight, we can all see things which would have been better done differently, or not done at all." And that, I think, went down very well with Irish opinion, and it's 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 a very good example of the soft power the monarchy can wield. And uh, I, my own example a bit earlier on was the Commonwealth, but the Commonwealth, but this was a very specific I- example. And I think only the queen could have done it. As a politician, it, w- it wouldn't have the same effect. Um, and it was really, I think, quite tremendous.
1: Thank you very much. Can we have the next question? <laughs> Of course.
3: Um, so the next question was asked by AH, and I'm sorry I didn't mention the previous question's author, it was Joshua Medley. So the author of the next question is AH, and the question is, how do you assess if those mourning the Queen's passing are queenist rather than monarchists, as this may, may dictate the path of travel for the monarchy?
2: Yes, this is a fair point, and I think uh, even people who are Republicans um, are mourning the Queen as a person, even if they're not in favour of the monarchy, that's a fair point. Now, opinion polls show that support for the monarchy is amongst the most stable of all indicators. It's been between 70 and 75 percent for years and years, and it didn't fall very much, even in the Queen's so-called Annals Horribilis in 1992, when um, uh, Charles and Diana, I think, divorced and um, uh, Prince Andrew, I think, divorced, and, and it was just a terrible year. It, it's very, very stable. There are a few signs, one shouldn't exaggerate them, but the young the more sceptical of the monarchy, perhaps they've always been. Uh, and we don't know how seriously to take that. But um, the um, I think the effect of the death of the Queen and people reflecting on that will make them more monarchical. And the fact that Charles has begun his reign really well, he's reached out to people, in in a new way, um, and uh, he has, I think, in some ways, more appeal to the young um, than the Queen did. Uh, he's a more modern person, uh, so um, I, I think the the monarchy is is very stable and helps to help. I say the fact that the choice of head of state is undisputed may, helps to make Britain a stable country, which most people favour. That's a very interesting case, particularly favoured amongst immigrants. I mean, we have a Times columnist, was also a conservative beer called Daniel Finkelstein, whose grandfather was in, grandmother, right, I beg your pardon, was in um, Stalin's Gulag. And she said, while the Queen's safe in Buckingham Palace, I'm safe in Hendon Central. And uh, that is a common feeling of people who come to this country from, from tyrannies. The equivalent of America, I suppose, is the Constitution. In Britain, it is the Queen.
1: Thank you. Have you watched the uh, television series, The
2: Crown? No, I haven't watched it. I'm, I'm always suspicious of these things. And I think, um, I think one must be careful with anyone who claims to know the queen or to know what happens in private, because I think um, the queen's friends only remain her friends or the king's friends, as long as they don't talk about his or her views. And if they say anything about them, they won't be friends for much longer. And therefore most of these friends are anonymous, and I think anyone should be suspicious of anyone who claims to be a friend of the queen or the king and repeats their views or their outlook or what they really are like, we don't know. And we won't know until the biographies are written.
1: Have you met many of many members of the royal family?
2: Well, I, I'm certainly not a friend, but I, I have met them on, on rare occasions, yes. But mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not even an acquaintance,
1: let alone a friend. So you can talk freely to us because you couldn't possibly lose friendship or acquaintanceship.
2: <laughs> well, um I, I don't I don't know the Queen's views or King's views, but um the Queen had a, a tremendous sense of humor. That's well known, I think, privately. She she'd be very informal, and well, nice in sense of humor and very hospitable. About the new king, I would say his main characteristic is his good heartedness, he's got a heart of gold, he's really concerned, bleeding heart, some would say, he's really concerned about those who are down on their luck. Um, and the Prince's Trust has done a lot in that direction, I say so it's found jobs for about a million people, I think, and a tremendous amount of help.
1: What do you make of these recent scandals that he accepted money from very unholy sources? Yes,
2: I don't know about that. I mean, I think one of the cases was that for some cultural reason, the person concerned only did hand over money and not checks or in any other form, but I don't know, and it's being looked at, but um, I I really don't know anything about that at all.
1: Okay, thank you. Do we have another question, uh, Roxanne?
3: Yes, we do. And the next question was asked by Stuart Rossler and um, it says that it has been said on the news that King Charles vision for the monarchy is for it to be more informal and transparent. Do you think we will actually see any significant changes in the monarchy's role? If so, do you think it will have much of an impact on Britain?
2: Do, do I think it will? Sorry, I missed your last words.
3: Oh, I'm sorry. And the question, the and the last the, bit
2: of the question I missed.
3: Um, do you actually see any, do you think we'll actually see any significant changes in the monarchy's role? And if so, do you think this will have much of an impact in, on Britain?
2: Yes, um, there won't be a change in the role, in the sense. There'll be a change in the style. As I said earlier, it'll become more open. It'll reach out to more people, uh, younger people, I suspect, in particular. And it won't be so London-centred. I think the visits to Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales are symbolic of that. Symbolic of those changes. Um, the style will be different. The essence will remain the same, but the style will be different, as it is with every monarch, because they're different people.
1: Okay, thank you. Do we have another question?
3: Um, we do have a comment that is uh, that was us, that was written by one of the people who asked one of the previous questions. And he says that the Tories have adopted many labour policies. However, the NHS is in continual decline. If this trust cuts the taxes funded by borrowing, and in the absence of Corbyn, labour will have an extraordinary firepower in the next general election.
2: This is a fair point about the National Health Service. It is crumbling. I mean, a lot of people spoke highly of our great National Health Service. It's almost a religion in Britain. One former chancellor, Nigel Lawson, said it's the nearest the British do have to a religion because you're not meant to criticise it. Well, that's not true anymore. And I think the people are ahead of the politicians in demanding reform. And it's not just a question of money. I think we spend more on health than most of our European, uh, most European countries, but get worse results. It's a model that's wrong. Um, and uh, let me say quickly, I don't think anyone wants to adopt the American model in Britain, which is, is rather different. But um, I think we've something there to learn from Europe or alternative models. The health service, remember, was set up in the 1940s and is still the same. I mean, it's it's been changed organizationally, but the principles are the same. Now, if you bought a car in the 1940s, you wouldn't think it worked very well now. And um, it does need, in my opinion, very radical reform. And you may say, if you have something that's free at source, for which demand is almost unlimited it's not going to work very well there'll be queues and not very good service and i suppose you had a national food service uh, sort of paying for food it was paid for out of taxation the quality of food wouldn't be very good but you'd be queuing up all day to get some and i think that's part of the problem with the health service it needs radical reform needs to be looked at radically whether the government will do that i don't know but it's certainly what it needs the Conservatives are more likely to do that than the labor party because they created it and regarded its creation and they tend to think the answer is more money tony blair doubled the budget in 2000 and um made some improvements but not really great enough to to put it on an even keel
1: mm-hmm. thank you i mentioned at the beginning that one of your most famous students was the former prime minister david cameron i'm wondering despite your guidance why did he go for the referendum in 2016.
2: i think he had no alternative because um uh, 81 MPs had defied him on a three-line whip by calling for a referendum. The UKIP party, led by Nigel Farage, was making great gains. And um, he took the view in his uh, Bloomberg speech in 2013 that this was a running sore and if not dealt with, it would get worse and worse. And I think the mistake he made, is was partly Angela Merkel's mistake, he didn't press her hard enough on getting restrictions on EU immigration. And certainly the East European countries wanted restrictions, but they couldn't say so because they said, we're losing our most talented and able people, but we can't say so in public because restrictions on immigration are associated with communism and we, we can't say that. So um, he, he should have hit the table and said to Angela Merkel, if you don't give me restrictions, I will call for a, a leave vote. And then I think we've got somewhere. But there's a further twist to this that, as I understand it, and you, you may know more about this than I do, Klaus, but as I understand it, after the vote, Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande, who was then the president of France, took the view that the vote was really a request for further negotiation. And if David Cameron went across, he would then get concessions. Now, David Cameron took the view he must resign immediately, having been repudiated. And his successor who was Theresa May, took the view perfectly understandably Brexit means Brexit. That's what the British people have voted for. And so Hollande and Angela Merkel thought there was no point wasting political capital. That's what they decided. But there was a chance, even after that, I think, to get somewhere, perhaps to renegotiate and have another referendum. And that, that went fairly quickly. But I, I think David Cameron's much blamed. And to be frank, although I don't like the decision, if you live in a democracy and the majority of people in the country do not want to be in the European Union, then we shouldn't be in the European Union. And that itself validates David Cameron's call for a referendum. We shouldn't remain in an organization if the majority don't want to be in it, surely.
1: But it was a very narrow majority wouldn't it have been sensible to put down uh, the, the qualification that there should be a two-third majority or 64? Or no,
2: no, because that would mean if say 55% voted to leave, we'd stay in, the majority don't want to stay in. And um, I'm afraid those who like yourself and me, Klaus, those who don't like the decision, we're all trying to find excuses. It's like a, a, someone who loses a lawsuit, they always say it was unfair. The judge was biased or the, your defence counsel was no good or whatever it was, they didn't like to face the fact we lost the argument. And um, the argument was, won. It was a perfectly fair referendum. And it's interesting, one point about the referendum, that the air of it, that there were, um, of the areas which voted Remain, which were Scotland, Northern Ireland and London, they had three, of the four lowest turnouts, three of them were in the Remain areas. Now, if the turnout had been higher in those areas, the result might have been different. Because, of course, every vote counted. The highest turnouts were in the northeast, which voted strongly leave, and um, I think that's a point worth bearing in mind. And there's also, having mentioned London, you see a huge difference between London and the rest of the country, between what Theresa May called the anywhere's and the uh, uh, somewheres, and um, the, uh, as it were, the elite were again were in favor of remain, but a lot of people weren't. It was a revolt against the elites, really.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you. There are many good things about modern Britain, including the the NHS, the BBC, and the universities. (laughs) But all of these issues seem not to be appreciated by the governments of the day. Instead of valuing them, they seem to be intent on running them down. Will that be reversed in the future? Well, the
2: the NHS isn't in a good state. uh, And frankly, it's not such a good thing about Britain. The BBC's had its problems, uh, very serious problems, um, which you may have read about, about um, not noticing a very serious sex offender called Jimmy Saddle and chicanery to get an interview with Princess Diana some years ago. It's redeemed itself with its coverage of the death of the Queen, which I think has been very good indeed. As for our universities, well, they are better, I think, than the universities on the continent. Most of the great universities in Europe are in Britain but I have to say and I'm not saying it just for an American audience that the top American universities are streets ahead and the top British universities they pay higher salaries and the conditions of work are on the whole much better. Now that may partly be due to the fact that almost all our universities are public uh, bodies but you have a mix of public and private bodies so as I understand it, the standards were to fall at um, Berkeley. Uh, resources will go, st- uh, go to Stanford. So the pressure for Berkeley to raise its standards, you have a mixed economy of universities. And I think we have a lot to learn from American universities. We're too, our universities are too reliant on the state, in my opinion. And I think the top, most of the top people in the subjects I know about are actually in America. Amer- America Everyone talks about America's military and political power, but I think it's academic and intellectual power is awesome uh, as compared with Britain and certainly as compared with the rest of Europe.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Roxanne, do we have another question?
3: Yes, we do. Uh, The next question was asked by an anonymous attendee and it says, do you think King Charles III would play the same role as Her Highness Queen Elizabeth II did in the Church of England?
2: Yes, uh, the uh, the monarch is by definition, so-called Supreme Governor of the Church of England, which is an established church. We have no separation of church and state in England, but the church is established only in England. In Scotland, a different church is established, a Presbyterian church. And when today King Charles moved from England to Scotland, he ceased to be a member of the Church of England and became a member of the Church of Scotland. Now, Wales and Northern Ireland have no established churches and the other Commonwealth monarchies, Australia, Canada, Jamaica, they also, none of them have established churches. So you may say it's an anomaly. It arose from the uh, religious wars in the 16th to the 18th century. And um, in practice, I mean, Americans might, may found it find this odd, as if people who don't belong to the Church of England are somehow second-class citizens. In fact, that's not the case. There's complete freedom of religion. And indeed that's guaranteed by the Human Rights Act. We have a system of pluralism, but nevertheless, the monarch must be in communion with the Church of England in England and a member of the Church of Scotland in Scotland.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. There's at least... a, religious,
2: a religious test for the head of state, sorry.
1: Thank you, thank you. There's at least one viewer from Northern Ireland who wants to know how long it will take, uh, or whether uh, Irish unification can be prevented for a significant period of time.
2: Well, that, that, that is up to the Northern Irish. Um, there's provision for a referendum, if ever the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland thinks there might be a majority for that unification, and Britain said it won't stand in the way, it has no strategic or selfish interest in Northern Ireland. Now, there's not, the nationalists are not at the moment putting pressure on the government for a referendum, which means they think they might not win it. And there'd be one problem, suppose you won a referendum by 51%, then the majority, given Northern Ireland, the majority could actually, minority could actually be quite violent if the Republic had to accommodate a large number of intransigent unionists. so they might not want to do that. Uh, I think for the foreseeable future, that won't happen, but uh, it may be demographic factors change the situation. I think the the death of the queen probably intensified from um, British feeling in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. And uh, we have another question, Roxanne?
3: Uh, we do. This one was asked by Basud, to- and I, I apologize if I mispronounce this, Basud Tautavin Um, Did the very decision to call referendum jeopardize the tradition of parliamentary sovereignty in the British constitution? And is it reasonable to fear that the growing presidentialization of British politics can harm the very nature of the democracy?
2: Presidentialization, did you say? I didn't quite hear again. Presidentialization. Yes, I think this is exaggerated. Uh, We're not a presidential system. Uh, These um, suggestions have been made for a long time. The first time people said the Prime Minister was a president or even a dictator at the time of Sir Robert Peel in the 1840s. And then it was said about Gladstone, who prepared his Irish Home Rule Bill without consulting his colleagues at all. And then Arthur Balfour sat three cabinet ministers on the same day. Then people said that uh, Harold Macmillan was um, a presidential prime minister, and, and um, uh, I think Wilson was said to be, and then Margaret Thatcher. There's an ebb and flow of prime ministerial power. And I think it depends primarily on the electoral situation. I mean, we, the voters, gave Boris Johnson a lot of power by giving him a large majority in 2019. Theresa May in 2017 had very little power because her majority went in the elections of the hung Parliament. And these things depend on, on electoral support. Liz Truss is not in a particularly strong position because um, she's inherited a majority, she hasn't won it. And she's, in a sense, on probation. So I think one shouldn't exaggerate. Our system is one of collective, a collective system, collective cabinet system, uh, and not a presidential system. I don't think it can be
1: made to work Mm presidentially. But but, uh, Lysstras is unlikely to make Theresa May's mistake of calling for an early election? Yes, I think that's
2: right. Um, The British public don't like early elections when they can't see a reason for it. And um, they say, well, you know, there must be something fishy about it, or why are you calling the election? I, I think that's right. I think she will hold on, and the Conservatives are behind in the polls at the moment, and she needs to establish herself. I think there won't be an early election. I think that's right. Thank you.
1: And we have, I think, one final question.
3: Um, this final question was was asked by an anonymous attendee, and is there any truth? To the rumours from the American press about the abdication of King Charles III in favour of Prince William?
2: No, there will never be an abdication. The abdication of 1936 was traumatic for the monarchy because it strikes at the root of monarchy. Uh, the, the nature of monarchy, as I said earlier, is that the succession is undisputed. Once someone says, I don't want to do the job, people then ask, who's the best person to do the job? And you're in a different system. You, you cannot abdicate and i certainly think charles will not abdicate uh, certainly having waited so long to become king there'll be no question of that and it's also important to note that any change in the succession like abdication requires the consent not only of britain but of all the other monarchies i think there's about 14 others canada australia jamaica all the rest of them it's not just a matter of britain you can't have different laws of succession and uh, the abdication was very traumatic particularly at the time when Britain was facing the dictators of the continent, and it seemed that the stability which the monarchy gave was being endangered. People were very worried, more worried than perhaps was justified. They were very worried
1: at the time about it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Vernon, you have studied British politics <laughs> for many years now. Tell us about your um, expectations for the future in a realistic way. Uh, what do you expect, uh, how the country will be doing? what are the major challenges which can be overcome or which perhaps cannot be overcome? What is is your vision for the next few years?
2: Well, look, it's difficult enough for historians to find out what happened in the past, let alone to determine what is going to happen in the future. But I think the main problem we face is summed up in the word leveling up, the huge differences between um, what you might call the exam passing classes, who moved to the conurbations, to London, to Edinburgh, Manchester, Birmingham, Newcastle, and voted for remain in the referendum. And the so-called left behind, who have very few qualifications and remain in the small towns, uh, run down very often in the North and, and the Midlands. And the government, the Boris Johnson government, to be fair to it, has produced a very good 300 page white paper on how to level up those communities. it involves primarily improving educational standards, skills, I think, being the key to growth. And our skills aren't very good. Uh, For many years, we've had problems competing with America and Germany in technical education. Our rate of functional illiteracy is far too high. Having said that, I'm not sure America doesn't have a similar problem between the, um, the ambitious who've done well, who've moved to the great metropolitan centers, and no doubt voted Hillary Clinton and Biden, and the left behind who voted Trump, it may be a key problem of many democracies in this meritocratic world in which education is the key to advancement. And so I think that is the main problem we face. If we could resolve that problem, if we increase our rate of growth, better skills, better technical education, I think we'd do much better economically.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you very much indeed. These are good and profound insights. (laughs) Absolutely, as all the many things you told us before about the psyche of the British, about the importance of 1940 and uh, everything you told us. uh, We are very grateful. Thank you very much, Professor Vernon Bogdana. Thank you for joining the Krosno Global Event Series today. I hope you will come back at some stage in the near future, hopefully. Um, I would like to uh, to remind our audience that the next Krasno event is already tomorrow, Tuesday, at 2 p.m. U.S. East Coast time. That is when General Ben Hodges, uh, former uh, commander of U.S. uh, troops in Europe, will talk to us about Russia's war in Ukraine. He will tell us a lot about the military and strategic situation on the ground, and of course that situation has been radically altered in the last few days, so we expect a highly interesting talk that is tomorrow, Tuesday at 2pm, General Ben Hodges. For now, uh, Professor Bogdana, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to our audience for staying with us and for joining us today, and I'll see you all again tomorrow. Thank you very much indeed. Bye bye.
0: Today's episode comes to you from the Krasno Event Series at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you to our speaker, Professor Bogdanor, and you, our audience, for listening today.